just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here is what Salt Lake's talking about. The Utah legislature is still in session, and executive producer Emily Means and I are breaking down the bills we're obsessed with this week. Plus, SLC Housing for All submitted an open letter to the mayor, and we have Picks of the Week. It's Friday, January 26th. I'm Allie Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Good morning, executive producer Emily Means. I'm sorry I sound like a tissue. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, Allie, I love to start my day with the sweet sounds of your voice. So I'm I'm here with you. I'm along for the ride. More nasally than ever, though I feel like this tis the season to get the sniffles. And certainly true, we have true. listeners that are have the sniffles while listening to this and I just I see you. I'm with you in this journey. <laughs> We've all got the January crud, okay? And the legislative crud. It happens every single January for all of us. I totally know that because when I went to Smith's to try and get some Dayquil this morning, I didn't need to go very far. The the sliding doors opened and the first thing I saw was Dayquil and they were like, hello, would you like this? <laughs> they were ready for you. <laughs> but you're right. The legislature is in session, which means we are breaking down some of the bills that we are hung up on because they are good, bad or otherwise. Do you want to go first? You want me to go first? I've got an update on a bill from last week. Let's get the update first. So the bill update that I have is the anti-trans bathroom bill is now an anti-trans locker room bill, kinda. Mm. So previously, this was legislation introduced by Dan McKay and Kira Birkeland that said you can't use the bathroom that matches your gender identity. You have to use the bathroom that matches the sex you were assigned at birth. For a host of reasons, this is problematic. But a really interesting one arose between last week when we talked about this bill and as it stands today. And that is that they previously in the bill said that included publicly funded and publicly owned facilities. Well, domestic violence shelters, which are federally funded Mm. in Utah, said Dude, you will jeopardize our federal funding if you do this. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't just, like, legalize discrimination in a federally funded facility. That's not going to work here. So Senator Dan McKay made a substitution and changed it basically to sex-designated locker rooms. There are still bathroom restrictions. They only reply to government-owned and operated facilities, not publicly funded and publicly owned facilities. So like schools and universities, that means that what still exists at the crux of this bill is public school students who are transgender being told by these legislators, specifically in this legislation, that if they need to use a bathroom that doesn't match their sex 
at birth that they have to work with school administrators to make a bathroom plan. A bathroom plan. I'm sure that's exactly what school administrators want to spend their time doing. There are no other no other big issues happening in schools right now. Right. No, they have nothing but time to sit with a student who is already dealing with being a kid and like trying to do that in a way that makes them feel the most holy themselves, which at the end of the day is always and should always be our message to children um, and make a bathroom plan that does not force them to suffer the humiliation or discomfort of being in a space that does not feel right for them. And like the thing about this is just like the whole like I was reading through this this morning and just getting more and more confused by all this tricky, weird language. And it like pivots and there's this and that. And what it is, is that this legislation is just alphabet soup of exceptions and exemptions and confusions. And it's so convoluted. And the reason it's so convoluted is because it is not necessary. And it is also basically unconstitutional. And Mm. these are all workarounds to allow this bill to even exist. I gotta say, I'm surprised that they amended it at all. Like, usually they just kind of stick to their guns on these things. And they'll pass something regardless of whether it's constitutional or... Whether doctors hate it, like... Yeah, if doctors hate it or... So I'm surprised they amended it at all. And I think what we need to pay attention to is the way they're going to talk around this bill as if it's a compromise. Yeah. Don't fall for that, my friends. This is not a compromise. It still effectively um, discriminates against trans people. And we need to keep our eye on the ball with that. Okay, there's just like there's no way of sugarcoating it. And we need to hold our legislators to account on that. This is not disagreeing better. This is tone policing people who disagree with you into silence. Can I tell you about a bill, Allie? Yeah, tell me about a bill. Please make it upbeat. In a completely opposite, and I don't even know where this bill came from, and that's what interests me about it so much. This one is called Utah Bee Inspection Act Amendments. B as in bees. I already love it. I already love it. (laughs) And this is a really short bill, Allie, not convoluted at all, that simply restricts the ability of a governmental entity to regulate beekeeping on private property. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, free the bee. I mean, like, I don't I literally have no idea what this is in response to. It's the kind of bill that has me wondering, like, if the sponsor tried to (laughs) put put a beehive on his property somewhere and and found he wasn't allowed to. And then he was like, you know what? Are bees loud? I don't know if bees are loud. I don't know anything about bees. But what I do know is that in Salt Lake City, there is a beekeeping ordinance and it has some some rules about where hives can be located on your Mm. property. They can only be in the side yard or in the backyard. They can't be in the front yard. And, you know, they need to be close to a water source on your property. They can't be too close to the other person's property line. Yeah. There are regulations about the types of bees you can have. And so (laughs) I don't know. I don't know uh, where this bill came from, but it did give me a good laugh this morning. <laughs> well, has this bill passed yet? Do we think it will, Bill? I have no idea if it'll pass. Okay. Um, it when I looked at it, it was still very, very early on in the process. Okay. So it's just like one of those bills where I raise my eyebrow and I'm like, is this an issue? And maybe it is. 
Yeah. I mean, bee allergies are a very real thing. So like if I have a neighbor and they start keeping bees and they're not doing it well and the bees are just lawless, then I can see why I would want there to be some sort of regulation around that. But like in terms of noise or aesthetic like nothing could be cuter than those little hive things i mean hello david beckham has them they were the subject one of the subjects of the documentary about him and like they're also i feel like kind of quiet like a steady hum could even help you sleep at night whereas like chickens i do not want a neighbor with chickens that's a nightmare scenario yeah let's not even plant the seed to have more uh, more chickens i live in in a condo to avoid having a neighbor with chickens like that is that's my truth Okay, I've got another bill for you, Emily, that I think you are going to like. So it's not yet filed, though, according to Voices for Utah Children and Senator Luz Escamilla, it is in the works. It's called the Public-Private Child Care Development Pilot Program. And basically what it would do, so this is a pilot program. It would start in Salt Lake County and create one to three new child care programs here, see how it goes. And this bill would allow childcare providers and the state to work together in a public-private partnership, which the state of Utah loves a good public-private partnership, mm-hmm. especially around childcare, to retrofit unused state buildings into childcare facilities or for childcare programming. So they would, the state would contract with childcare providers that are in good standing with the state to basically come in and turn this unused state-owned building into a childcare facility. I am so interested in this idea. One of the reasons I love it is because I love when the Utah legislature presents solutions to problems as opposed to solutions in search of problems, (laughs) which I feel like sometimes we get legislation, especially the super meaty culture war stuff, where it's like, what problem are you solving here? This is a really interesting solution to a problem. The problem, of course, being that we are in a child care crisis. Yeah. There was a really interesting article in Utah Business a while ago now. We actually interviewed McKenna Malin, who wrote it on this show. And I'll link it in the show notes because we got into sort of the data and the research a lot, lot more. But 44% of Utah's labor force is made up of women. And 62% of those women are mothers with children under six. And we simply do not have enough childcare facilities, nor enough affordable childcare to meet the need in our state. And what this like U.S. Chamber of Commerce report found is that because of that, the state of Utah loses about $1.36 billion a year in economic opportunity. That's nuts. That is so much money. Like, think about how much effort. You and I were just just on Wednesday on the show talking about Sundance, right? The Sundance Film Festival, that whole institution, which we put a lot of energy into discussing, offers the state $100 million in economic activity. We are losing $1.36 billion every year, not providing enough child care resources. Like, that's 10%. We should be talking about this more than we're talking about Sundance. Exactly, exactly. And when we make that argument, I mean, that's when legislators' ears really perk up, you know? How much money are we losing on this? Money, 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 money. I'm interested in this proposal, Allie, but I think it addresses just one side of the problem. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't need one bill to do everything. But when I think about, you know, the conversations I've had with child care providers, I mean... 
staffing is a huge problem, right? So 100%. we can look at these facilities as, you know, as one part of the solution. But like, how are we going to find enough people to staff these facilities? And maybe that's something that, you know, Senator Escamilla proposes later on down the line. Well, and I think like this bill is kind of a good example of the woes of being in a super minority in the legislature. Like Senator Escamilla, she's the minority leader, but like she is a Democrat from Salt Lake up at the Utah legislature, which has a Republican supermajority and an excess of legislators that are outside Salt Lake County. And so it's like, can she fundamentally and radically change how we approach families and like the state's like ideological philosophy around whether it spends money on families. I mean, these are the kinds of bills that you can like kind of get through and you can make the economic case. And like, it just feels like, especially from the minority party, like you really only have the power to kind of like shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Like it's that, it's, it's that scene in Austin Powers when he's trying to like get the golf cart out of the parking spot, you know, and you're doing like an 18 point turn. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like you're always doing an 18 point turn around these issues when you don't have real power in the legislature. Fair point. I don't know if the Democrats <laughs> would appreciate that characterization, but sorry, guys, but that's the truth. That's the truth. Like, keep working hard. But like, you can't really play chess or checkers up there. You kind of just got to take your wins. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at slclivingtrad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you wanna learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. All right, Emily, 
Give me another bill. Okay, so since 2018, the legislature has worked to make it harder for a ballot initiative to be successful. You will remember in 2018, Utah passed three ballot initiatives. And I think the legislature was really surprised by that. And they also didn't like it because it meant they weren't in control of the situation. And so they took control back by changing all three of those ballot initiatives. Never forget. Never forget. Never forget. Um, So since 2018, you know, good government watchdogs have basically described what the legislature has done to the ballot initiative process as death by a thousand paper cuts. And this year we're seeing yet another paper cut. So there is a resolution to amend the Utah Constitution to require a higher percentage of voters than a majority to approve an initiative that proposes a new tax or increases an existing tax rate. In plain language, please. Basically, you would need 60% of voters to approve a ballot initiative that increases or proposes a new tax instead of a simple majority. So we're just changing democracy? We're raising the bar. We're raising the bar yet again. We're reimagining democracy. (laughs) Yes, but let me cage this uh, in this reality, Allie, that the legislature needs two-thirds in both chambers to propose a constitutional amendment. So, uh, you know, that is a pretty high bar, although they can probably get there, right, with the supermajority Republican legislature makeup that we have. Yeah, but they're like, uh, you know, a couple hundred people in a representative democracy. The threshold should be higher for them to get something done. If we make a populist decision, the threshold should be a majority. But maybe maybe I'm naive. Okay, keep going. You know, I'm with you. I'm following you. Um, so, yeah, I just think, like, we should always be keeping an eye on the ways the legislature wants to make this ballot initiative process harder, right? Yeah. Like, they put more limitations on signature gathering while also raising the signature threshold. And, yeah, just wanted to keep an eye on. It's very early on in its legislative process, so we shall see where it ends up. But to amend the Utah Constitution, we do need to put that to voters. So if the legislature supports this, that's not the end of the end of the race for this uh, proposal just yet. So then there would be a referendum on this proposal. And would it be determined by a simple majority or by 60 percent? So a simple majority is all that's needed to approve a constitutional amendment. Okay. Next, what's another bill you're interested in, Allie? I've got one that's also procedural, and I think it's kind of sinister. So this is called HJR 8. It's a House joint resolution proposed by Representative Cheryl Acton, who is a Republican from Salt Lake County. And it's called the Joint Resolution Amending the Rules of Civil Procedure on Disqualification of a Judge. And we're kind of obsessed with judges at CityCast. I feel like we've done a lot of judge judicial like amendment shows and judicial procedure shows because judges are where the rubber meets the road in our democracy. Like when we live with a in a gerrymandered state with a super majority legislature, like the courts is where a lot of things end up and it's where a lot of important decision making happens. One recent example is the fact that Judge Andrew Stone issued an injunction on the 
trigger law that would effectively ban all abortions in the state of Utah. And that is the reason that abortion is still legal in Utah up to 18 weeks right now, even though the legislature basically passed a bill saying, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. So here's what this would do. I'm just going to read it to you and I want your reaction. In a civil action pending in a court in a county with seven or more district court judges, <clears throat> Salt Lake County. Is that us? <laughs> uh-huh. Each side may file a motion to disqualify one judge without cause. Hmm. So you now would get to say, I don't like that judge. He's out. I don't have to give any reason. We want a different one. Hmm. We're just going to play musical judge chairs. Musical, musical bench. Musical bench. What? I wonder why Representative Acton is pursuing this. Okay. Tinfoil hat on, Emily. The kinds of bills that we're already seeing in the first two weeks of this legislative session. Removing DEI programs, which we recently learned via reporting from the Salt Lake Tribune, could undo the University of Utah's agreement with Native American tribes to allow a scholarship benefit to their students. This bathroom bill, these unconstitutional sort of like gender biased bills, these are all things that are going to go to the court. Um, currently, like sitting in the, with the court is a number of bills related to abortion, right? Like they know that a lot of this legislation is going to the courts. So what do you do? You amend the court system. So that you can get rid of a judge like Andrew Stone, who you think might exhibit non-bias when hearing out your bill, or at least give you better odds. It, that is the tin, my tinfoil hat version of this. If there is another reason for both sides to be able to disqualify the judge they've been assigned without cause, it feels a little Twilight Zone for me. Isn't there something about checks and balances here, like between our... <laughs> Our uh -huh. legislative branches and judicial branches, like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Is anyone thinking about that? I don't like it. Now, it is worth saying a side is not entitled to more than one disqualification. So you can't just go around and around and around and around and forever. You get one and then that's it. But it does feel like it turns our judicial system into a bit of a card game. Of course, I guess you can make the argument that like when we pick jurors, we kind of do this, right? Like each side of a case can eliminate jurors and kind of go through and look for bias in jurors. But my spidey senses are telling me that this is wrong. I haven't heard a lot of talk about it. I'm very curious to hear the debate around this bill. There are mm -hmm. a lot of lot of lawyers on Capitol Hill, and yeah. I'm sure they have some some strong feelings about this. If you're a lawyer and you're listening to this, and you like feel like you have a full understanding, please share that with us. Salt Lake at CityCast.fm. We want to hear from you. Whether you think this is a good thing or whether your spidey senses are also going off. Okay, Emily. Last one. Give us one more. This one is a really good bill, Allie. It's by Ooh. Representative Marsha Judkins from Provo. She's a Republican. And it would require landlords to give tenants a 60-day notice of a rent increase, except for renters who are on a month-to-month -month lease. How is that not already a thing? <laughs> this is a good bill. What I found from Utah Legal Services is that all that's required currently is for the landlord to give uh, notice 15 days before the next rent payment is due. So that's quite a quick turnaround for sure to determine whether or not you can pay that increased rent. Yeah. But Allie, like as beneficial 
was this would be to tenants. Uh, there was a similar bill last year, and it stood no chance of passing. So the difference, though, is that last year's bill was sponsored by a Democrat. This year's bill is sponsored by a Republican. So maybe it'll have a better chance, but I'm not really sure. We have a lot of people involved in real estate up on Capitol Hill. We mentioned that often. The Utah Apartment Association is a really influential lobbying organization here in the state. So I don't know what kind of chances this bill has. Okay, good to know. As a renter, I'd love 60 days notice. My Lord. My Lord. (laughs) Let me know if I need to get another job to pay my rent, okay? (laughs) Okay, Emily, before we get into Pick of the Week, you have some news for us regarding social housing. You want to break it down? Yes, let me let me break it down for you really quickly. And I love that it kind of dovetails with the last bill that I that I was talking about. So there is a new coalition called SLC Housing for All, and it's led by residents. And their goal is to make housing a human right by making it easy to find, making it affordable, making it accessible. And this week, they delivered a, ma- a letter to Mayor Aaron Mendenhall to ask her to put some money for social housing, for publicly owned, publicly funded housing in Mm. her budget this year. And Ali, I think this is really interesting because, you know, obviously housing and the, the affordability of it all is one of our biggest crises here in the state. But this is also something that came up a lot during the mayoral race, where we heard from Mayor Mendenhall's opponent, Rocky Anderson, that He really thinks we should be pushing hard for the city government to own and operate and develop public housing. Mayor Mendenhall, on the other hand, takes more of this approach, which is we should be using taxpayer dollars to incentivize private developers to build public private partnerships. Yep, we love a public-private partnership here. And so this organization is brand new, but this is one of the first steps of their campaign to see if we can get more social housing here in the city and have that be an option for us. I'd like to talk with them more because when we interviewed Marin Mendenhall and asked her about social housing programs, one of the things she said was, we do not want to build projects. We are not going to build projects in Salt Lake City. We know that the projects is a failed model. I've heard from activists that like often this idea of projects, government projects, and like social housing is sort of conflated. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to try and unpack that because I myself don't understand all the different ways that like public, fully publicly funded housing can come together. But right. there are places in the world that successfully do it. Right. And, you know, it would be great to explore those options. It would be great to explore all of our options here. Yeah. Um, for the mayor's part, Allie, I asked her office to respond to this letter. And, of course, they agree that housing is a, a critical statewide need. But, again, they think that these public-private partnerships are the most efficient use of taxpayer money. They think it might be more expensive per unit for the government to fully fund these housing developments. So, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see if it's something that Mayor Mendenhall's administration entertains down the road. Yeah. Well, she's giving her state of the city very soon here. We'll see what she has to say about housing. Okay, Emily, let's do pick of the week. Can I go first? Please. Okay. Here's my pick of the week. Farewell, Usana, Usana. I never knew how to say you and I won't miss you. 
Welcome, Utah First Credit Union Amphitheater in West Valley. Oh my God. Really rolls off the I'm excited to be liberated from the name USANA. I also am deeply uninspired by companies that sell supplements for a living. Though if USANA wanted to advertise with this podcast, we would take their money. Nice save. <laughs> uh, you, you, I mean, clearly they're out there and they've got a new hole in their budget. So what's interesting to me about this is the rise of credit unions in Salt Lake County. Because USANA is now the Utah First Credit Union Amphitheater in West Valley. Rio Tinto Stadium, home to Mm -hmm. the Utah Royals and Real Salt Lake, recently became America First Field. America First is a credit union. And I'm like, when did the credit unions start balling? Because we know that banks are for-profit institutions. And so it makes sense when like Chase can throw money at something. Yeah. But credit unions are not for profit. So I don't know like what's up or if there's been a quiet revolution to take our money out of banks and put them in credit unions. But if the result is that our stadiums are named after them, I'll take it. I mean, in the realm of living within the system of capitalism, this is a version I can live with. Well, I mean, honestly, I haven't thought that deeply about it, Allie. But... But I am wondering if this is going to be a situation, you know, like a Delta Center situation where locals just call it USANA forever and ever. And we will never, ever refer to it as what I don't even know what it is. Utah Utah Credit Union? Utah First You can just call it the Utah First Amphitheater. I don't know, man. I don't know that I will. All right. What's your pick of the week? Okay, my pick of the week is a bit of a newsy item. Uh, This week, Sandy opened their housing program for the medically vulnerable folks who are experiencing homelessness. It's typically referred to as the MVP program. This is really exciting, Allie. It's been in the works for a couple of years now. And I think it's so important for us to have this permanent program. Uh, The last thing we had like this was the Ramada Inn as a winter overflow shelter that was specifically for older folks and people with chronic illness. And Mm -hmm. once that closed, I mean, it it was devastating when that closed. So I'm so happy to see this program open. I'm happy to see it open in Sandy and see other cities stepping up to the table to support this population. Couldn't agree more. The facility has 165 beds and people can stay there for up to two years. It's a really big deal for our community. Just to give a sense of why this matters so much, the average median income in Salt Lake City is around $72,000 or it was in the 2022 census. The average median income in Sandy is about $108,000 a year. Like, this is a very wealthy part of the county. And for Sandy Mayor Monica Zoltansky to be kind of leading them in the direction of showing up on this issue, in if you want to frame it in the sort of not in my backyard, yes in my backyard, activists versus neighborhood character like argument, This is very, very interesting shift. Like, I think it's fantastic. And it will be interesting to watch and see how the city embraces this program because it does feel like people are embracing it. 
Right. And this was formerly a motel. So it was one of those buildings that they just converted into a facility for these specific needs. I think that's something that we'll be seeing more of. It's easier than building <laughs> building from the ground up. And Salt Lake City also kicked in some money to support this program and the development of this program. So um, shout out to Sandy for doing their part. Executive producer Emily Means, I will see you on Monday. See you Monday, Allie. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Our executive producer is Emily Means. Our producers are Ivana Martinez and Dylan Brogan. Our newsletter editors are Terina Ria and Adrian Gonzalez. And our host is me, Ali Vallarta. Music is by the local band Mitochondria. Sometimes we use music from all the kimonos. We will be back Monday morning with more from around this city. I hope you have a great weekend. Okay, Christian Bale from Newsies over there. <laughs> <laughs>